Hi, this is Steve. And this is Lisa. And we're back for Ep 2, Season 2. Ep 2, Season 2. Uh, Lisa, I'm not going to beat around the bush too much here. Um, okay. Because we have a pretty complicated topic Ooh. tonight. Okay. Um, so, but I do have to give two quick shout-outs. Okay. Shout-out number one, Timmy Quentin. Okay. Because he's supplying the beer tonight from wonderful Port City Brewery in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm going to join the uh, Port City Porter he brought me. They're going to have to pay you for an ad spot with all the exposure they're going to get from this. I know, but he paid me in beer, so it's fine. (laughs) That's true. This is what we call mutual respect, mutual Mm -hmm. benefit. (laughs) No, it's mutual benefit based on mutual respect. There you go. Yes. Yeah, so much benefits and respects. Yes. Um, And the other shout-out I have Mm -hmm. to give is to his roommate, our friend Russell. Even though he doesn't even listen. However... Yeah, he doesn't really. This is like Sometimes a, when he wants to like make fun of us, he will for like a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Um, but this is like a very rust topic tonight. Like he's obsessed with talking about this stuff and bringing it up when we're... It's like, you know, circa 3 a.m. and we're solving <laughs> all the world's problems. Are we going back to World War II? No. It's not... It's, it's, it spans. This, we're talking about a concept tonight. It's okay. not really even like a topic. It's a complex topic, concept, theory sort of thing. Okay. So that's why we got to get into it quick because we don't want to be we don't want to keep our listeners here all day, and this has potential to go in a lot of places. So the shout out is to Russ is just that he would enjoy this topic. Yeah, and he kind of put it in my, the idea in my head originally to. To do something on this because I think it's oh. really important and it's also tied into what I'm going to tie our, our today's lesson in as is, is around a speech by President Eisenhower uh-huh. that I think might be the best speech in American history uh-huh. above like arguably even like MLK and the Gettysburg Address and all this stuff like this is an incredible speech because of how it's like a prophecy you know what I'm saying and it's 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 just so crazy. It's not as influential as I had a dream, of course, or Gettysburg Address, but like the content is is, is crazy. And we're going to talk about the content. Let's because get into it's it. prophetic. Yes, but it's like a, like a hindsight is twenty twenty speech. Like its sure, greatness is realized but it wasn't later. Hindsight, it was like way ahead of its time, and it's just like holy. Sorry, God. yeah, but you you don't realize till later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was so yeah. great. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, let's. Let's get into this content. It's a little abstract for me right now. It is, and, and then the, the, yeah, sure. So, does the does the phrase "military industrial complex" mean anything to you? Yes, for sure. Are you familiar with it? Yes. What is? Can I ask? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Because um, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah, I'm sure it what does. What does it mean to you? Um, I think of it as this monolithic kind of machine that is kind of a force in and of itself and it's just this huge I mean obviously it's militaristic right it's all the war power it's all the machinery all of the money the interests the politics everything that goes into um, waging war I guess 
Yes. Um, I don't know. That was kind of a weird ramble. But um, no, I actually think you were pretty good. Like you know, I I had to. You're very you're sweet. Take a lot. No, it was decent. Like I had to like sit here and do a lot of research before I can put together what like the succinct definition was. And yeah. you at least hit a lot of the main points about what's involved in the military industrial complex. Mm. So I'm just going to sort of make it more succinct with a nice little definition that I had to throw together based on the different yes, things that Yes, let's, let's, okay. let's make it clear. So in a very simplified way, okay, it is a, it, it refers to the interconnectivity between the U.S. military, industry and manufacturing, and Congress, okay? And Ooh. most people actually even say that military industrial complex it should always be referred to as the military-industrial-congressional complex. Well, that was much more helpful. Yes, because – and it's also nicknamed the Iron Triangle with those three sides. Oh, so it's more specific. Okay. Yes. And to me, it was just like a, just a haze of death and war and money. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of a, a super skeptical way, and there are plenty of people that would feel that way about the military industrial complex. I'm not trying to even be negative. Sorry, I just mean like it's like well, maybe I am. I, well, no, I think most people think of it as a negative thing. Well, it is a little scary to have so much so much mm. politics and money tied up into what is essentially the business of. Yeah. Killing people. Although some people would, you know, say it's protecting people. Yeah. But. Well, that's what I mean when I was saying it's so many things and so many different people. Right. Is that like? Here's what I found out in my research. Okay. Some people think it's a total conspiracy theory that doesn't exist. Some people huh. think it is a fact of our culture that affects us on an almost daily, if not daily, basis. And other people <laughs> think it's like. Sorry, I said never. Mind. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, or it's, you know, somewhere in between and, and involves other things like science, but it doesn't necessarily involve like um, the arts, for example. So it like touches all sorts of different levels of our culture. Hmm. Okay. Um, I would like to give a more like I feel like even even that definition, there might be some people listening that are still confused. Mm hmm. Um, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a very generic example of what the, the, this connectivity between military politics and industry is. Okay. So we go to war, right? Mm -hmm. While in war, we need bombs. Yeah. Okay. Congress mm -hmm. distributes our money in this country, power of the purse, right? So mm -hmm. Congress hires a private manufacturer to make bombs. Okay. Mm -hmm. To make bombs, we have to hire – the company has to hire a whole bunch of people, hundreds, maybe even thousands mm -hmm. of people to make these bombs, mm -hmm. right? We then use those bombs to win the war, okay? But the war is over now. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with that factory? Um, what well, do we do, Lisa? You, let's say you're a politician. What should we do with that factory? We're in peacetime. Do we need a bomb factory? Um, well, I mean, based on what I've read and seen, I think we just, yeah, we just continue making bombs and store them for future use, right? I remember when we bombed Syria and, the, and it was like this like insanely expensive bomb that w was like, just like no one else had and the technology was crazy and we had like six of them and they were like worth like, they were 
cost like billions of dollars. Yeah, the biggest bomb that's ever existed that wasn't nuclear. Yeah, oh, that was it. Yeah. yeah. That and gets, yeah. To be totally clear, we bombed a terrorist complex in Syria. Just, you know. Oh, you yeah, opposed to, to like waging war on the state of Syria. Yeah, yes. fine. Okay, just. Well, no, I'm trying no, to keep no, this no, wait, wait, wait. no, I don't think so. I it's, think we bombed them because Assad's regime used chemical warfare against civilians. So I think actually maybe. I don't think that was, was like a tunnel network dug into like the mountains, like, and we Gosh. bombed a bunch of like we bombed a, like a mountain sort of thing. Okay. It wasn't like a government building. Okay, but it was wasn't it was it government sponsored terrorists? You could make that argument. I think that's what the American argument was. Oh. Okay. There's a government sponsored terrorist, and we are on a war against terror, so we're going to use this bomb. Okay. Um. But that's sort of straying away from the point. Right, right, and we don't, neither of us really know what we're talking yeah, about right, on that topic. Right, right, right. Let's try to keep this as historical <laughs> yeah. as we can, right? Um, so, anyway, so the, the question then is we're in peacetime. What do we do with this bomb factory, right? Okay, and so one of my guesses was we just keep making bombs, but I guess. No, well, that's what it comes down to, right? right. Option A is keep making bombs. Yeah. What's the benefit to keep making bombs? You, jobs and, you know, use of a factory and, you know, more explosives. Right. So the other option, right, is to shut down the factory. So then yes. to shut down this factory, mm-hmm. hundreds if not thousands of people lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, the way that things work in this country. It's not really about them. It is to a certain extent. But what it's really about is those couple of people who got super rich off that government contract owning the bomb factory. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to maintain their lifestyle, right? So what you're going to have here is two prongs. The masses, the people working in the factory, mm-hmm. they're going to vote for congressmen that are going to maintain their jobs. People that are going to continue to dump money into the military-industrial complex, yep. even in peace times. Yep. And again, probably more importantly, those couple of rich dudes that got super rich off of the bomb factory, mm-hmm. they're going to hire who? Lobbyists. Lobbyists, right? They're going to hire the lobbyists to convince all the other congressmen to also continue to dump money into the military-industrial complex, Right. So this is, I think this is clear, right? Yeah, it's clear. But now my brain's like, well, what are the alternative uses for these factories? But well, So I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa, because I, I, I wasn't going to say anything unless you sort of gave me an opening here. There's your opening. It's a very interesting complex. Or sorry. It's a very <laughs> it is a very interesting yeah, complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because we obviously started making a whole lot of weapons during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and after World War II, like America had done forever, for like the 200 years of existence up until then, the bomb plants shut down, the weapons plant shuts down, and they sort of, um, uh, what's the pivot, right? So now if you're making bomber planes, now you're making commercial airlines. Instead of making weaponized Jeeps, now you're just making Jeeps for the roads. Right. Okay? Something changed. It was the Korean War. So the Korean War happens, and for whatever reason, even though it was only eight years after the end of World War II, we didn't pivot back. All of these weapons companies stayed weapons companies. Because? Well, we don't really know. Probably then the easiest answer is because of the Cold War. It's like how many times are we going to have to keep getting in proxy wars with communists? We better stay alert, stay active in the military. 
Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, huh. let's get into the more historical side of things, the more concrete. Okay? Lisa, I see those gears turning in your head, and I love it. Like, keep, th- <laughs> keep thinking of these good questions. Okay? <laughs> They'll range, I'm sure, in, in uh, their quality, but I've got plenty. But continue. All right, so this whole concept is not was people say that it first came around around the Civil War in the United States, or pretty much any time around the Industrial Revolution, right? The, the military-industrial complex. Yes. Civil War, really? Yeah, because huh. you can argue that we're into this. We're into there's in, like, industry involved in war by the Civil War. Really, it felt so grassrootsy to me. But there's still like mass. Back in the day. When <laughs> <laughs> back, back, back in the when, when I was children. living there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Look, sorry. There's still mass production of weapons. Yeah, they still have to get their muskets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like dudes on swords that were pounded yeah. individually by, you know, yeah. whoever, blacksmith. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's like they're being mass produced in factories, so it's an industrialized war. So as soon as you have industrialized war, you have a theory of the military-industrial complex. Okay. 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 Now, it didn't really become a household term, and you can argue it's still not even today, but it's much more common. Yeah, it's super common, I feel. Right. And and it was Dwight Eisenhower who did this, President Dwight Eisenhower. He coined the term? No, no. Or he popularized it? He popularized it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. and he did this in his farewell address in 1961, which I which I labeled as the prophecy. Right? <laughs> that's that's a Steve Williams. That is a personal thing. Yes, okay. yes. Okay. And basically, what he did is he warned that we are moving down this dangerous path. Okay, that we are getting so intertwined with our military, with our industrial with our manufacturing, with Congress, with politics, that it's even spreading into daily life. Stuff like propaganda, stuff like, like all sorts of things. And this is very dangerous because it is eventually going to lead mm-hmm. to bad policy that actually hinders mm-hmm. or stifles or whatever the democratic process in America. Okay? So what he's, again, to simplify everything I just said, okay, it's going to lead to us making decisions and passing laws that are better to benefit the military and the industrial barons than it is to the American person and the, the democratic process. Well, I feel like you could say that about a lot of shit. Well, I mean, I think anytime and wherever there is money and wherever there is power and it, it is usually thwarting the democratic process, right? Well, sure. And we yeah. can, we're not going to get into that conversation. We can make 20 episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, sorry. Things that stifle the democratic process. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I guess it's the same formula, but the, the problem is that there is so much money wrapped up in it and, right. um, and there's so much fear wrapped up in you know, mm. being able to protect ourselves. and You're talking that fear of being able to protect ourselves is, yeah. most people would argue, is a byproduct of us having a military-industrial complex. That the fear, they sort of feed itself. It's like that snake that's eating itself. Uh-huh. It's like, we need to have a reason to keep making me- weapons. So let's generate some fear. Okay, so now we're fearing 
someone else, so let's make some weapons to protect us. No, no, no. I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. Completely. I just... Fear is very powerful is what I'm trying to say, and it's very easy to drum up that... It's so easy to get, to have people scared. I mean, it's tied in the politics, right? Yeah. This, you know, this us and them, this the terrorists out there, the unknown, you know, and the same with patriotism, right? That's also all wrapped up into that, loving this country and protecting this country and feeding that beast and how, you know, and like we've seen recently, it's so hard politically to say that you're going to take away money from the military because then it's just like, oh, you're making us less safe. I mean. Yeah. And this is, this is it. This is the complex. This is the military industrial complex. Yeah. 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 Not all countries think this way. This is, it's like, we're not the only ones who do it, but it's a, it's an American thing. There are countries out there that are not constantly of fear of being bombed and terrorized and we're not also constantly using their military to go do shit all over the world. No, absolutely. And I think I think another thing that's kind of like the snake eating itself and and this begetting itself is, you know, for example, right, there's 9-11. You know, you can make an argument that our military industrial complex led us to do things in the Middle East that may have exacerbated the risk of a massive terrorist attack, right? Not blaming. I mean, it was an awful, tragic thing that happened, but it happened. And that is etched in everyone's minds forever and ever. And it's this fear, you know, like not everyone has this fear of being bombed, right? But now not everyone had to watch their two most, you know, like their most powerful city, you know, experience that kind of terror, right? So it's, it's just, it is, it's really, it's a spot. It's a downward spiral. Which is why I hate violence, guys. Well, <laughs> okay. So you just you, just, you touch on a lot of things, but again, no, no, th- that's perfect because it gives me an excuse to talk a little bit about the conspiracy theorists behind it. I, I think it's hard to argue that they're like people argue how much this influences our policy, military, industrial policy, like all, all of our policy or like our foreign policy. Don't overthink what I'm saying here. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's just say policy for now. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of conspiracy theorists, though, that think this stuff goes really deep. Like conspiracy theorists, the type of people that think 9-11, like the United States government was in on it. Right. Or at best knew what was going to happen and didn't do anything. Right. And those big time. Same with the Pearl Harbor. Like there's also conspiracy theorists for that too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But just like MI, there's this whole MICC conspiracy theorists will tell you this type of things because they think that's how ingrained we are. It's like, let's give an excuse to go basically enter something called a forever war in the Middle East and you can't ever say anything against it because it's unpatriotic because 9-11 happened, so fuck you. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's even people that might be listening to this that thinks this is unpatriotic just us having this conversation. You know what I'm saying? That's how ingrained patriotism and 9-11 is in this. It is, but also it's patriotic to to analyze your country and want to make it better or, mm-hmm. you know, or to understand it better. But anyways. Um, we're on a long tangent. I wanted to do it. I know. I'm so sorry. Stuff. I didn't know we were supposed to go with this. I mean, yeah, my brain is firing a lot of directions right now. I don't know how many of them helpful or insightful, but let's well, let's go with your with your. So, so I'm going to throw an exercise at you. And okay. this is really hard. I'm putting you on the spot. I admit it. Uh, okay. Yeah. I wanted to do this exercise of Eisenhower said it would be bad for policy. It would mess with the democratic system if we get too obsessed with the military industrial complex, right? Yeah. Can you think of any policies or anything like that that could be real life examples or in theory or anything like that that can go wrong 
when there's too much interconnectedness between manufacturing industry, the military, and politics. So, like, I had time to think about this, prepare for this, but I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, like an example of how the military-industrial yeah. complex has has defeated us in some way? Not defeated us, but is it hampered the democratic process? Oh, sorry, hampered And this can get very political, and, but ignore that. Okay, ignore it. Like, don't try to censor yourself. Bad policy is bad for 50% of the country and good for 50% of the country. But, you know, I'm just looking for some, for some things to throw out there. Uh, hamper the democratic process. Um, can, I, uh, can I give a, an example? I mean, it, is, is it enough to just, when we go to war without Congress's authorization? Because that's technically they represent the people. Sure, I think that can be part of it. You're talking about the war powers um, resolution where the president has is not not for a very long time in the history of the United States was the president allowed to send our troops anywhere, okay. and you know without authorization without authorization of Congress, and it's happened a shitload in the last sixty years. Right, right, and right, that's the right. war powers resolution, and no one questions it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. that's a good example. Sure, that works. Okay. What about, um, you know, this can be something that, this is extremely political, but I'll put it out there because for 50% of the population, it's true, which is how about how much funding we spend on military development when we have so many needs elsewhere? So like social security is dying out, yet we direct shitloads of funds to the military. It's something as simple as that, right? Okay, you consider that hampering the democratic yes. process. Okay. And I don't want to talk about that too much because I want to do some stats on that at the end of the episode if we have time. But your example, you mean? That's just an example, yeah. Yeah, but no, no, I mean, I think about that all the time. And mm. I mean, I think as you, you know, from what I've studied and what I've seen in my work, um, you know, I've seen when people just try to throw money at a problem mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't work. Um, it really doesn't work. And I think that we've thrown so much money at the military in, in this country. And then you, you know, read these reports about waste at the Pentagon. It's just like, well, at this point, you give them such massive bu- budgets. They're just trying to figure out ways to spend it. Like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Can, can we save that, though? Okay, I'll save Because it. it's like that conversation is, is much better with stats that we're going to get to at the end. Um, yeah, okay. Sounds good. Right. I'm zipping it up. Some other things that I've thought of that you can... That like our negative effects, right? So if you're making too many weapons, mm-hmm. you're eventually going to have to get rid of those weapons. And the United States has a long history of doing some very shady things with weapons. Gross. But that's what we're going to do when there's so many weapons. Space, we- space, space, space. We send them into space. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We do not launch them into space with the, uh, <laughs> other garbage. No, I'm sure we do much worse things. Uh, um, but like, let's talk about it like real quickly. Um, I we've talked about some of these concepts on this pod before. Okay, are directly related to what we do with the weapons? Yeah, what do we do with weapons? I, mean, I have imagined we hand them over to some, um, you know, informal groups trying to that we want to gain power in other countries. Yes, absolutely. We yeah. do shit like that all the time. Oh, you're fighting an enemy of our enemy? Or you're a guy fighting an enemy of our enemy? Here's uh, a bunch of rocket launchers, automatic weapons, tanks, anti-aircraft, shit like that. Yeah. All right? Good luck fighting our enemy. Yep. And then, unfortunately, yep, it always comes back to we end in up the ass. fighting. You know, another, most, it's another snake eating itself. Right. And most yeah. famously is Osama bin Laden, of course. Right. He was fighting 
um, the Soviets during the Cold War. So we gave him a shitload of weapons, trained him how to fight. And then sure enough, we were fighting him ourselves not long after that. Right. He did some damage. Right. Um, the other thing that has come up recently, think like Michael, um, Michael Brown, St. Louis, what we do with weapons. Oh, we give them to our police. We hand them down to our police because we have no use for them. I didn't even think about that. So a lot of people are upset about in this country about how incredibly militarized our police forces are. They have tanks and stuff in certain precincts. It's like it's absurd that some of the weapons that they have, right? But this is the type of stuff that happens when you have a bunch of weapons lying around. Yeah, I'm going to have to say when it comes to weapons... We don't. We should not reuse or recycle. We should just reduce. You know? Nice. It's good. I well, I was just thinking that because I was going to make some really dorky comment about recycling. What's your dorky comment? Well, I don't know. Really, uh, I'm not. I'm not. Sli- I'm not sly today. Normally, I've got so many great, great things to say to you. I just shoot and fire all the time. Yeah. It's so no. strange that I'm not being slick. Yeah. Um, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. What's wrong, Lisa? <laughs> Maybe this is just like too heavy to relax your brain into making your extremely sharp-witted comments that you know. I know it's that must be it. There's no other explanation on mm-hmm. the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other things, right, Lisa? Y'all, what's the number one way to increase the demand for bombs if you're Congress? Go to war. Right, which is also a big problem, right? Because. If you're one of those congressmen that we talked about from, like, you know, like... I don't like to think that. Do you really think that? That we actually try to go to war just because we want to make bombs? Just because we want to make bombs? No, but again, this, Lisa, this is, this is it. This is, we're talking about a theory here. I'm not claiming any of this as fact. I'm just saying these are the type of things that people talk about when they're talking about the military-industrial complex. Is people are way more willing to... Congressmen are way more willing to approve of going to war if they're in a district that half of their constituents are working at a like a Northrop Grumman factory. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so that's the other problem. The other problem I thought about is that there's so much money in making weapons that it opens up a door for lobbying Congress for... Right, they all just have all the money to spend mentioned. on it. Yeah, and now we're talking about this whole snake eating itself thing. Is like the more we talk about military, support military, the more money there is, which means there is more money to lobby Congress to continue moving down this path. Um, I'm going to give you some 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 Getting depressing. So <laughs> I'm going to get you some stat some statistics, Lisa. Okay. Um, top five weapons manufacturers in the world are Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. Boeing, mm-hmm. Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, General Dynamics, mm-hmm. all Americans. All right. We are the biggest exporters of weapons in the world. Um, and on top of that, Lockheed Martin's in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Northrop Grumman headquartered Fairfax, Virginia. General Dynamics is headquartered in Reston, Virginia. Now, what do those three places have in common, Lisa? They're close to Virginia wine country. <laughs> they are all close to Virginia wine country, so they can unwind after a hard day's work. Yeah, they're all close to the what government is- in D.C. Yes, they're all right next to the government, and this is all very, very... Um, Disgusting. It's all very deliberate. Um, those five companies sold $148 billion in weapons in 2018. 
What? Yeah. The fuck. Worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty intense. How much? Sorry, I don't mean to ask you a bunch of stats that you might not know, but do you know what percentage of that was for the U.S. versus exported? So a lot of that was indeed exported. It wasn't all to the United States. Well, yeah, that's why I was like, kind of like, yeah, what difference? (laughs) Give everyone else guns. (laughs) What difference does it make, dude? Like, we sold a bunch of weapons to Iraq under Barack Obama. Like, I mean, it's. I thought he was perfect. (laughs) Um, That's gross. Mm Mm-hmm. That is really gross. Uh, but that's that, that's what a lot of people will point to and how the military-industrial complex has, has come to fruition. Like everything he said, like there's so much money in this. By the way, to back it up, Boeing, mm-hmm. you might have noticed, is the second leading um, arms dealer in the world. Yeah, they're going to That stat I gave you, $148 billion, does not include their commercial airlines. I was talking about just about the weapon sales between those five groups. Yeah, no, I figured, yeah. Now, Lisa. Yes. Let's move away from the military industrial complex for a second. Mm-hmm. I think we've like established what we're talking about. Okay? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit. It's a bit of a digression. I want to talk about Eisenhower's speech and how I think it was such an incredible prophecy. Can okay. I tell you about some other points that he talked about? Yes. Only one of them is about the military, right? Okay. Number one. He warned against using our military to bully other nations and saying that the only reason we should ever use the military ever is a last resort to maintain peace. And as soon as we start using the military to bully other nations, we are not a good superpower and we are not a good force in this world. All right. Again, we don't want to get too political, but there's a lot of people out there who say that we use our military to bully people all the time. Yeah. I mean, even if it is that kind of, Lighter bullying. Uh, shit, what is that? What is that? Uh, that no, no, I know it. Um, it's uh, oh my god. We're we talking but, about Teddy Roosevelt. No, I, yeah, no, I'm talking about that. Oh, I can't I remember the name of it. Big stick. Oh, 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 yeah. Big stick diplomacy. Big stick diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. What was the other word for it? The the boat one. Uh, cannon boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, sorry, big stick diplomacy, yeah. which is when you don't actually do anything, but the threat, the looming threat of the military yeah. is, is omnipresent. Yes. All right, so more about farewell address from Ike Eisenhower. Okay. One, uh, number two, uh, we should not seek to constantly be consuming and using up all of the Earth's resources. They are not infinite, and it is eventually they are, going no, no, to... They, they are not infinite. Sorry. They are not infinite. Sorry, you did yeah. right. I that was that was bad of me. God, you I, should have, I should have more you confidence learn the in your language words. Better. I should have more confidence in your words. Yeah. <laughs> um, number three, he stated that we need to simultaneously be liberal and conservative, progressing while maintaining conservative values. Right. So this whole concept that a lot of people say we've reached now, or where it's like such far sides of the right and left, he said. We shouldn't get to that point. We need elements of both all the time. Yeah, no one agrees with that anymore, except maybe myself. Um, But they, I mean, I don't know, maybe it evens out. We do swing both ways. Uh, Yeah, I mean, to be honest (laughs) with you. A little whiplash, but. (laughs) I think this one is pretty debatable, right? I think think people like to speak this narrative of the country is super separated, but it's not necessarily more separated than it ever has been between the right and the left. 
Again, yeah. extremely arguable thing, so I don't want to spend too much yeah. time on it. My favorite thing, other than the military industrial complex that he talks about, is that he warns about people getting too obsessed with sort of miraculous technological solutions to very complex problems. Sort of like Ugh, read, yeah. let's not get too obsessed with technology that's going to solve everything. We can't get like addicted to technology because humans are these complex beings and we will always need to have open communications and like there's not one thing that's going to solve all the problems. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could wipe away technology from that statement. I mean, I think there are no miraculous solutions to complex problems in general. I mean, and that's the problem with like a lot of these kind of like, you know, everything needs to be so distilled in political campaigns, you know, and it just so loses so much of the nuance that is the reality of the world. Yeah. Now, I also have read that, read into that statement as the way he phrases it is sort of like, we can't just support this one thing that's going to fix all of our problems. I also read that as a military thing where, like, we tend to have this horrible understanding of, we'll just go bomb the shit out of them and kill all the terrorists. Or just go bomb the shit out of them and kill all the Nazis. And that's not really how it works, right? That this, this whole system is layered. So I think you can actually work that into the industrial complex as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, now. Mm-hmm. Lisa. That's me. Our conservative listeners out there, because I know that we have a couple. We do? I hope they have not turned it off. Oh. I hope it was like, this is some liberal, anti-war, anti-American rant. Mm. I want to clear the ear here for a second. <laughs> Did I say clear the ear? It says clear, no, clear the, clear the ear. Let's clear the ear. <laughs> yes. Let's. It's my favorite pastime. <laughs> we will clear the air. Mm-hmm. And... It, let's, let's, this is a bipartisan thing, right? And, and this is not a liberal rant we're going on. Okay. It can be interpreted. As I don't such. think it's a rant. I think it's like a, it's like kind of like a, you know, a, a you know, a gobbledygook of military industrial complex stuff. Yeah, sure. Sure. It's just like a grab bag. Yeah. Do you know a anything about Ike Eisenhower, Lisa? What do you know? What do you know about Dwight Eisenhower? Well, he gave a good speech. He gave a good speech? <laughs> Do you know what political party he's from? Who? Oh. Um, I think he's a Republican. He's a Republican. Okay. Do you know anything about what he was doing before he was president of the United States? Slaying. Slaying Slayin bus. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's really inappropriate. How can you speak that way against the, the, about the late Ike Eisenhower? I mean, because I don't know a lot about him. I mean, I can paint. You really don't know what President Eisenhower did before being president. General Dwight Eisenhower. Oh, did he play a general on a TV show? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was he was in the military. Yes, he's obviously a, he's a World War II hero, right? He's a four-star general. He was the dude who's the main brain behind D-Day invasion, and then chasing we you know we call it a you know, sort of slangly chasing Hitler back to Berlin. So he organized pretty much the military strategy in Europe in World War II. Military hero, <laughs> Republican president. Okay. Those are some big accomplishments that I missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Ike. Right? So this is, this is like, 
Well, that's even more meaningful that it came from him then. Right. It adds a shitload of credibility. I mean, this isn't mm. freaking Bernie Sanders saying, be like, we spend too much money on the military. No, that was the worst. <laughs> that was literally the worst Bernie Sanders in the history. Yeah, of the I mean, it was a good South Park. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. And just to be totally clear, Eel. after Eisenhower was JFK and LBJ, two Democrats yes. who came in there. Mm-hmm. And totally didn't listen to a word he said in his farewell address. They immediately sided with the Pentagon for almost everything. They gave the military almost what, exactly what it wanted. They highly escalated the Vietnam War, leading to all of these deaths. Okay? So this is not a liberal rant. I'm telling you these things to prove that these concepts that he spoke about in this farewell address are universal concepts that have been fucked up by both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, everyone's an asshole at the end of the day. At the end of the day, that's true. Yeah. Take oh. that one to the grave. Yeah, that's what's up. Lisa Rudolph. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mess. All right. Um, so I just want to be very clear about that. Okay. Okay? Now. No. Finally. Finally. Lisa. That's me. Again. Yes. We're going to talk about stats. And the reason I want to throw some stats out here is because there are people out there that still say there's no military-industrial complex. We use the military when it's totally necessary. You don't have to be involved in the military. Like the military doesn't have to affect your life. Blah 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 blah. Okay. Okay, but like, there's clearly a huge military here. There's clearly a huge industry behind it, and there's clearly a huge political that. element to it. So it's I like, don't know if everyone realizes that. So I am going to give some stats to prove that we are pretty. Goddamn into our military in this country. Alrighty. Okay. Alrighty, Teddy. First of all, the U.S. military spends 52% of its discretionary spending on the military. Okay? And it's been floating around since this speech around 52%. It's dipped a little bit lower. In some cases, it's risen higher. But a good number is 52% of our discretionary spending. Lisa, do you think I need to clarify what discretionary spending is? Yes. So there's two types of spending in the government, mandatory and discretionary. Mandatory spending is stuff that we have to spend money on. The huge, huge, huge one is paying, paying the interest on our debt. Yeah. Okay? So discretionary means what Congress decides we can budget, mm-hmm. right? And of that pot... of it is just on the military. And there's like 18 other damn categories that break up the remaining 48%. Yeah, give some examples. Education, Mm -hmm. Social Security, Mm -hmm. um, ironically, Veterans Affairs. Social welfare, all social services? Social services, yes, in general. Um, The um, inter-state highway systems, um, HUD stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably prison. Most prisons are. We're not going to get into okay, prisons, sorry. but uh, all sorts of things. Anything mm-hmm. you can think of that the government spends money on, mm-hmm. that is a small little sliver of the discretionary budget, mm-hmm. and then fifty-two percent. So, like the second highest thing that we spend money on is seven percent, and that's education. Which even a lot of Republicans attack us spending that much money on education because, to be fair, it is outlined. That education should be a state and regional thing, not a federal thing. Yeah, right. But, you know, our education is at a bit of a crisis. So. Yeah, that's a disaster. <laughs> All right, so 52% of our discretionary spending. Lisa, that comes out to be $68 million that we spend on the United States military every hour. 
I'm going to say that again. We spend $68 million on the military every single hour. What the fuck are they doing? That's bizarre. Well, that's how much these weapons cost and how much money we're giving to Northrop Grumman and all this stuff. Yeah, and all the and all the service members, I guess. Mm-hmm. There is that element, but we still, that's kind of the most disgraceful thing is we're spending all that money on the military and the veterans come back, you know, with PTSD and we can barely even treat them. Like they're coming back with amputees because there's not enough money allotted to veterans affairs. That's only 6% of the, approximately 6% of the budget. So we spend 52% on what we call quote unquote defenses, which are essentially weapons. And then we only spend about 6% like helping our, our soldiers who are over there actually doing the fighting and putting themselves in harm way. So sad. Uh, yes. It's kind of messed up. Um, we spend more money on the military than the next 12 highest spending countries in the world. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Of those 12, 10 of them are like our allies anyway. Right. Um, so the other, the only two in there that are high spenders are obviously China and Russia. No, but did you say combined? No, no, no. The United States spends more than the next 12 combined. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know if you said yes. combined and I was like, yeah, I just yeah. want to be clear. Um, hilariously too, um, the next two countries are Canada and Israel. And Israel is just like basically using our money because we fund Israel. They definitely are. Um, we give them what, like? Three billion, six billion, maybe? I think three billion to their military. Uh-huh. I don't know. I would have to look into that. Um, and again, finally, my last stat I'm going to give you, Lisa, I would like to I would like to hear your guess on this one. Okay. It's been 59 years since Dwight Eisenhower gave the speech about not getting too wrapped up in military affairs. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, of those 59 years, how many years do you think we have gone without being in some sort of military conflict. 59 years. What would you guess? Do we count proxy wars? Yes. If, they, if we're using our military, like bomber jets or sending troops somewhere, so like Nicaragua, the war in Kosovo, all that stuff, that counts as military conflict. Okay. And we only count hot wars though, right? Yeah, I'm not talking about the Cold War. Hot only. Um... How many years have we not been at war? Mm-hmm. Of um, the 59 since we've been, since he gave that speech. Four? Close, five. So we've had five years of peace since the 59 years that he said this. Those years were 1976 through 79, which was immediately following what conflict? The Vietnam War. Right. So that makes sense, right? right. Largely the most unpopular, you know, arguably the most unpopular war we've ever had. That gave us three years of peace. The other years was 19, 1997 under Bill Clinton um, before he got involved with Kosovo and the Balkans. And then in 2000, we have a year of peace before what happened? 9-11. 9-11 in 2001. And we have been at war ever since with literally no end in sight. In fact, looking like more wars to come. Okay? So when people tell me there's no military-industrial complex at all, that seems insane to me. Look at the figures. Look at the stats. However, if you're trying to tell me that Dick Cheney orchestrated 9-11, I'm not going that far. No. No. So it's all, it's all on a spectrum, right? Yeah, it's all on a shitty spectrum. (laughs) 
<sighs> I'm depressed. Don't be depressed, Lisa. This is just... I had gotten really good at ignoring the world's problems this week. Yeah. It brought me down. That's what happens when you watch um, 70 hours of cheerleading documentaries on Netflix in a two-week span. Hey, do what you got to do to get by. All right? <laughs> Sometimes you just need a little frivolity in your life to forget all the shitty stuff. And I'll tell you that. I mean, I know you weren't that into it, but I thought it was riveting. It is a decent documentary. I didn't hate it. I've, I've hated other things a lot more. It's basically just last chance you for cheerleading. It is. The but people are a little more appreciative than the last chance you football players. Yeah. It, well, it's, it, and it's, but it's still got the element of people from like hard backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and there's extreme athleticism. And you learn, and the, the the thing that's different is like, you know, most people know generally how football culture works, um, but cheer culture. I mean, unless you're in it, you know, it's a little foreign. That's true. That element was interesting. Yeah, and I'd always known that like there was a complaint for a while that like you know cheerleading is a sport and we work hard, and I always believed that you know my brother did gymnastics, so I understand what goes into like those tricks that they do. Um, obviously, it's different, but there's a is a like the tumbling and you know the aerial stuff, but um, I what I really didn't realize is how much they get injured. I mean, I, I they get injured more than gymnasts. I think. I mean, I, like you couldn't go a yeah. week without someone yeah. freaking doing something crazy. It's yeah. really it's really nuts what they do. Um, but but yeah, really really good. They follow the top cheer program in the country, a really tiny community college in Texas, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I highly recommend it if you would like to forget about the military-industrial complex. Yes, and this will take your mind off it real nice. Mm-hmm. Real nice. Yeah. I'm going to wrap it up, Lisa, because I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm actually going to, like, we're going to sign out, mm-hmm. and I'm going to play Eisenhower's speech. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend that you guys listen to it. I'm going to start it about halfway through when he gets into the meat of it, because it's like, I think it's a 14-minute speech. And I think I'm probably just going to play about seven minutes of it to wrap up. I highly recommend you go watch it on YouTube. It's all over YouTube. Listen to it. Listen to what he's got to say. There's Google breakdowns of it on the internet if you want to. If Because it's amazing how differently he spoke as a president in 1960 than some of our presidents speak now. It's like night and day. Um, yeah. So you might want to read a breakdown too. Um Look into it. It's really impressive stuff. So let's get out of here, Lise. My name's Steve. I was a history teacher. My name's Lisa, and I married him. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these, I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could with time, and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women 
are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society.